You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. On this episode of The Zeitgeist, my colleague Peter Raschisch and I have the pleasure of hosting Professor Marcel Fratscher. He is a prominent German economist and president of DIW Berlin, one of that country's leading economic research institutes. He's also a professor of macroeconomics and finance at Humboldt University in Berlin. Marcel was just in Washington as a guest of AICGS and spoke to a public audience here about the economic challenges facing the United States and Germany. That's part of our Geoeconomic Speaker Series, kindly supported by Allianz. Have a listen to episode six of the Zeitgeist for our first iteration, where we talked to Professor Michael Hüter. Globalization and technological change have reshaped the world economy. They've been vital sources of economic growth and prosperity in the United States and Germany for a decade. Yet polarization and political discontent persist despite rising incomes and low unemployment. Both countries have this in common, despite very different economic models. So clearly, there has to be more to the story. What are the insights we can gain from economic research into political sentiments and voter behavior? A key factor is inequality, an issue we will be working on intensively here at AICGS in the coming months and years. We'll dive into that today. We will also talk about the role of trade. It's the engine of the German economy, but the Trump administration has taken aim at the international trading system. Add to that the question of how the United States and Europe should seek to address challenges from China. Do we have a common agenda, or will this drive the transatlantic partnership asunder? When you look at these questions closely, there are clear similarities and not only differences. And that points toward the importance of common solutions to the problems we face. So welcome to the conversation. We're glad to be with you. Well, welcome to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, I'm Jeff Rathke, and I'm here today with Professor Marcel Fratscher and Peter Raschisch, Senior Fellow and Director of our Geoeconomics Program. So first of all, welcome, uh, Marcel. Thank, no, thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. So uh, you are here in Washington, and you've been talking um, about uh, the, changing, uh, the changing global uh, economy and, and what that means for Germany, for the United States, and indeed for, for, for the world. So I wanted to start with a, a, maybe a paradox, um, and I think you've described this well, that you know, in the United States and Germany, we're doing pretty well economically, but at the same time, we are experiencing a level of, of political discontent and turbulence uh, like we haven't seen in many years. So uh, where does that come from and uh, how do you see that? Indeed, if you look at Germany's economy and similar to the U.S. economy, the last 10 years have been very good years in terms of aggregate growth. Um, in terms of the job market, many people have found jobs. Both of our countries have record low unemployment rates. But the, the key message is you really need to look at individuals, at groups, at regions. And we see that within our countries, inequality has increased uh, along several dimensions. Uh, regional inequalities, you find the East and the West Coast doing relatively well in the U.S., equally in, in Germany. The South is doing great. The North and the East are doing less well. And also within socioeconomic groups, we have a clear pattern of a polarization, particularly in Germany, 
between the winners from globalization, from technological change on the one hand, and those that have benefited less. I wouldn't even say they're losers. They also have found jobs, but they don't have quite the same benefits. They don't have quite the same ownership of those developments as people that are, tend to be better educated uh, and have more opportunities. Mm -hmm. And if you think about this in, in a German uh, context, you, know, you mentioned the, the East not doing as well as the South. Uh, you know, it has been you know, almost 30 years since German unification, and yet you still have persistent uh, differences um, in, in income levels, for example. But at the same time, if you compare the city of Dresden to the UK and the city of, uh, of Birmingham, I believe it is, they're at roughly the same economic level. So uh, you know, on the one hand, Eastern Germany might not be doing as well as the South, but they're still doing pretty well. Or how do you, uh, how do you see that? Absolutely. Um, people in the East tend to be relatively dissatisfied. So if you look at the political voting behavior, you find that in the East they vote very strongly for the right-wing extremist AFD party or for the extreme left, for the former communists. And you wonder, and on the surface it says, look, um, they have 75%, 80% of the income of people in the south in much richer cities, but that's actually pretty good uh, if you compare to the Midwest to, let's say, California or, or New York or Washington, D.C. Um, so I think the, the, the issue is not so much the inequality in income, productivity, it's really about opportunity. It's really about the feeling of being left behind. And the feeling that you have in many parts of Germany, particularly the structurally weaker ones, is no one cares about us. Um, our regions are decaying because young people are moving away. Um, they say, look, we need to get a good training, good opportunities for jobs. We can get that in the south of Germany. We can get that in the big cities. Mm -hmm. you, so we have seen a, seen pretty big movements, migration within Germany from north to south, from east to west, from rural areas to urban areas, very similar to what you have in the U.S. in terms of regional dynamics. Um, and people left behind in, the, in, the, in those regions feel very frustrated. If you have the feeling your own kids are leaving their hometown because they don't have opportunities here, that's pretty frustrating. Yeah. Can I, inequality is an interesting topic because, of course, in the United States, we think about this a lot. It's we're in the we're at the start of a presidential campaign where that's one of the themes. But I think for most Americans, we have this general notion that inequality is not such a big problem. Uh, in in Europe or indeed in Germany, but I think your research uh, tells a different story. Can can you say a little bit about that? Inequality in Germany actually has a lot of parallels to the U.S. Germany has a very high degree of wealth inequality, so people often refer to as Germany say, "Oh, you have a very strong social welfare state, so you know things are pretty equal. Everyone has more or less the same income. Everyone has more or less the same wealth level." If you look at wealth, that's not at all the case. So and when you say wealth, you mean kind of the all the assets that a, that a household or a family owns, not 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 their income. Uh, wealth is what they have in terms of accumulated savings. That could be financial savings. It could be real estate, housing. Actually, very few Germans own their house, only 45% home ownership. That's the rate. 55% of the people are renting. 
Um, people have very few equities. Um, many people don't even have savings on the on the bank account. So roughly 40% of Germans don't have any savings means they're very dependent on the social welfare state. And, and that's kind of where the friction comes in. Yes, you have a strong social welfare state in Germany. That's an important difference to the U.S. But still... Um, you can see that people are frustrated if they have the feeling, look, uh, I, I don't have the opportunities I'd like to have. I can't realize my wishes, my dreams, my plans, but I'm really dependent on the social welfare mm -hmm. state. So that creates frustrations. And um, so, um, yes, the problem is not the social welfare state. The problem is the lack of equality of opportunity. And, and when we think about uh, uh, Germany uh, in the United States, uh, perhaps people have this idea of of a German automobile worker, let's say, a fairly highly skilled um, industrial worker earning a fairly high wage. And, and I think we have an impression of income inequality also being uh, not so extreme as it is in the United States. But uh, perhaps that's also not quite uh, an accurate representation. It's really important to make a distinction between disposable income after tax and transfers. There, Germany is has an income inequality that's roughly average in industrialized countries, l much lower than in the U.S. But the U.S. and Germany are actually very similar in terms of income inequality uh, when it comes to market income. So what mm -hmm. you earn from your employer before taxes and transfers. And in Germany, um, it's not the industrial sector that actually is very successful. We have Germany's economy is very open. The industrial companies tend to be in global markets, pay very good wages. Mm -hmm. In Germany, it's really the services sectors where you have high regulation, little competition. Uh, you have few social partnerships. So um, labor unions are very weak in those sectors. And um, this means Germany has an unusually large low-wage sector where around about every fourth German worker uh, works in what we call the low-wage sector, meaning less than 60% of the median wage, meaning mm -hmm. specifically less than around about 14 US dollar per hour. That is, uh, so more than every every fifth German worker earns less than 14 US dollar per hour, so quite quite little. Okay. Marcel, in terms of what to, to do about that, what, the, what policy responses would be appropriate, um, I know that you think, for example, that uh, there's room in Germany to uh, create more competition in the services sector. You think there could be more. I think I'm right. You think there should be, could be more investment. Uh, and it, while it's true that in the United States you do also hear uh, voices saying we need to invest more in training and retraining for workers and in, in upgrade our infrastructure, if you really look at the, where political attention has gone, it's gone more on to things like trade policy. And if you look at certainly that's true in the United States, but even when you look at Germany, if you look at the recent paper by the economics minister Peter Altmaier, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, uh, uh, sort of how Germany and the EU are going to be able to compete in the world, and we need big companies at the European level to do that. So my question would be: Do, do you think do you think there there is something that that sort of big trade or industrial policy could contribute to to helping people helping these inequalities and this polarization? I mean, is it some people have called for less globalization, or maybe we just need a better managed globalization? And and what would that look like? I agree with the argument that we have seen a period of hyper-globalization. So globalization that has probably gone too far in the sense that it has benefited a few but uh, cost many people quite a lot. Um, 
in the U.S., just as this is the case for Germany. Germany's economy is a lot more open than the U.S. economy. We have about uh, exports account for almost 50% of the entire production of the entire economy in Germany. Um, ironically different to the U.S., those who are in those export sectors get relatively good wages. So these are really the winners. But you have many services sectors that haven't benefited from globalization, that have really have been left behind, that have precarious job contracts. So the question is, how do you address it? And the the right answer, to, in my view, is not to turn back the clock or try to turn back the clock. You can't turn back the clock on globalization or technological change. I mean, that's not an option. Uh, that will create only losers. Um, I think this is what we have to be aware of. And, and uh, you know, in Germany, we have the same protectionist tendencies as you have here in the United States. Um, and uh, uh, that's not the answer. So the, the right answer must be to guide globalization, to shape it, to reform it, so that it works for everyone, or at least for the great majority of the people. Um, and that has many dimensions. Is on trade. Not every trade liberalization is right. You really need to make sure that you have proper competition, um, that you don't create global giant companies that have a very strong market power and extract uh, rents from 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 citizens. Um, so it's really about creating a level playing field, uh, and you know this type of globalization we need to push for. So let's assume, as you do that, uh, you can't turn back the clock on globalization, and instead, you know, Germany and the United States need to find ways to face it. Uh, one of the uh, factors in that globalization is the, the big rise of China. Um, the U.S. has certain strengths in, in its economy, for example, globally competitive technology companies. Germany has other strengths. Um, it's a big exporter in a lot of traditional industries. I mean, can you say which countries' workers and companies are going to do better in, in this in this globalization of the future faced with competition from China? First of all, we must realize that we all are winners from uh, the emergence of China. China is exporting uh, a lot of products very cheaply, so the consumers benefit from that in a major way. And a lot of companies, you mentioned U.S. tech companies, you can make mention German automobile uh, exporters or machinery producers. Um, so many have benefited from it. Um, but it's also clear that uh, on the one hand, the emergence of China or the integration of China into the global economy has created a lot of jobs in the U.S. and, and in Europe, but it has destroyed jobs in other areas. Uh, and these are not the same people. I mean, people who are in, in manufacturing lost their job in the Midwest or in East Germany who have been in services and really haven't seen the benefit from, 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 from uh, the integration of China. Those are the people you have to address. Um, and... That's not an easy answer. I think we must realize structural change. So changes in the structure of the economy is something that's completely natural. We have had that for 200 years. You can't stop it. I think to think that technological change you can stop at the border is just a complete illusion. Uh, so rather than be de being defensive, being nationalist, which we see just as much in Germany as we see in the United States, the much strat smarter strategy is to say, how can we internationally, across borders, across countries, work together to shape that process that it makes it work for everyone? Um, 
I would like to see much stronger partnership between the European Union and, and the United States. I think that's kind of the, the right way forward, in particular if we talk about China. We know also China is highly protectionist. You, it breaks intellectual property rights. It has very, very asymmetric access to markets. They have access to European and U.S. markets pretty much unfettered. Uh, U.S. and German companies, European companies don't have the same uh, access in China. So, you know, the smarter, much smarter way of dealing with China is form a U.S.-European partnership say, look, these are the standards we want, that's what we want to do. Now let's push China, um, because Europe and US make up 50% of the world economy. And I think that's the direction we should go, and, and the protectionism we see from all sides now is absolutely the wrong way. Okay, can I, can I push you a little bit on that? Because, and let me say from the start, that of course we recognize the current administration in the United States is extremely skeptical about many aspects of globalization and including on trade where it has indeed um, you know taken a confrontational course with Europe and with China albeit in different different ways um, but I guess the question is do you think the European Union is able to be a partner um, for the United States uh, on on China you know if, if we think about the recent past, you know, just a few years ago, before the Trump administration took office, uh, the Obama administration was trying to negotiate a free trade agreement uh, with Europe. And I think it's fair to say that, that that failed because of opposition within Europe, not necessarily from governments, but from the European public, uh, which was quite uh, opposed. Um, so, you know, what's, what do you think uh, is the degree to which Europe is capable right now of being a partner with the United States in setting and shaping global rules that will address this imbalance that will come from China's continued uh, growth? I think Europe is absolutely ready to be a partner. Um, you can say many things about Europe, and I have many concerns about the integration of Europe on financial market issues on others, but on trade in particular, Europe has always, or for a long time, had a single trade policy, um, mm -hmm. has been negotiating. I think they have been doing that well. Uh, the EU has recently negotiated trade treaty agreements with Canada, with Japan, right. now with Mercosur. So European, the EU, the European Union, shows that it is capable and willing of negotiating free trade agreements. So the failure of TTIP, in my view, is an absolute tragedy. I think it, it should be put on the agenda sooner rather than later. Uh, the reason for the failure in the past is manifold. I agree with you. There was opposition in, in, in Europe. Um, I think there was also opposition in some parts of the United States. I, I don't want to now say one side was responsible rather sure. than the other. Um, I think the governments have um, not done a decent job in explaining to their citizens why we need an EU-US partnership mm -hmm. on trade, but telling them, look, um, it's not so much about tariffs, actually. It's more about who sets the standards and tell the, the European citizens, look, you want to have data protection. You want to have uh, consumer protection on food, on other things. How do we get that? Who's, and the, the answer is um, you get it by um, teaming up with the U.S. because the question is who sets globally the standards? Right. And in the future, if the uh, Americans of the U.S. and China sets the standards, Europe benefits nothing from it. So the only, and I think Europe, the, uh, the EU and, and U.S. are very close in terms of the philosophy and 
democracy on liberal democracy on the value of on, on values on on the role of the market economy the role of the state so I, I see a huge overlap and much closer overlap between these two than between China and Europe or uh, China and the US mm-hmm. so I think it's our two economies who would, should get together political sides and say look this is what we want yes we need to do we need to compromise every side has to be willing to give up something in order to really have this pull and uh, set global standards. So you mentioned the role of values and shared values between the U.S. and Germany and U.S. and Europe and, and the way trade policy can advance those. Um, it, you know, up for, up for, for most of the years since a, uh, after World War II, we've assumed that the advancement of those kind of liberal, high-standard uh, principles and values would go through the World Trade Organization on a multilateral level. You know, now, for many years, if there's been a problem trying to go advance trade liberalization through the WTO. We've seen that. And more recently, we've seen complaints about the dispute settlement system, that it's maybe not fair to the U.S. or others, and it's, 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 it's more fair to China. Um, how, and you, but you mentioned also these, the number of EU uh, free trade agreements that it has completed, you know, very high-level ones, very comprehensive ones. How much should we, would, should we be worried about what looks like a kind of weakening of the multilateral trade system if if there all if there are these other avenues these and even the US and the EU are negotiating something now not like TTIP but if there are these other avenues to promote sort of liberal high standard values uh, in the global economy first of all we really need to make very clear that there is no alternative to multilateralism. If you look at the big challenges today, they're all global ones. If you look at climate change, if you look at security, uh, if you look at migration, if you look at data protection, if you look at cybersecurity, if you look at so many issues, these are global issues. So there's no alternative. The question is, how do you get there? How do you really get to global standards, global solutions? Um, clearly, it would be nice if everyone globally sat together at the same table and said, look, this is the deal, we do it. And we know this has not, or is getting more and more complicated and difficult. And WTO really has not managed. I mean, the last multilateral round started in 2001, I believe, the Doha round, and that really was not a success story. Um, now, Starting with the bilateral agreements, so I think getting to the multilateral solution, um, I see the United States and the European Union having the responsibility to take leadership role, to, to really say, look, where do we want to move? Um, how do we get there? Let's first agree between the EU and the US. You have 50% of global GDP. If we jointly say, look, China or whoever is the partner, that's what we believe is the right solution. Uh, we have a lot more leverage and a lot better chances to really get global solutions. And I think this, um, uh, don't get me wrong, I think uh, China is an important partner and, and Europe and the U.S. are benefiting from China. Um, but we need to, to realize we really need global solutions. If you think about Africa, just quick point on, on, on that one, we must realize it's in all of our interest that Africa will succeed will be able to pull people out of poverty, um, even if it's just for self-interest. In Europe, we talk a lot about, we are worried about immigration from Africa. And uh, we had a major refugee crisis uh, after 2015 through the conflict in Syria and other parts of Africa um, and the Middle East. Um, this will intensify in the future. So it's in our very own best interest to really have global solutions. So, so. 
bilateral or regional trade agreements can be a means, but the ends should always be multilateral and global. They, they must be multilateral. And I, by the way, in a way, that's always what I admired about the United States, that uh, the U.S. since World War II always, of course, had a self-interest, but it really did it in a way that, that it benefited multilateralism benefited the global economy and I think we, we need to return to that kind of model where uh, having a self-interest and at the same time the global interest in mind is not a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Marcel, let me um, uh, go back to a different uh, topic. Um, you know, here in the United States we are about three-quarters of the way through the current fiscal year and the, uh, the budget uh, deficit I think is about $750 billion. So we're on track for about a trillion dollar uh, deficit this year. In Germany, um, there have been budget surpluses for many years in a row. Um, Is that a bad thing? Are you suggesting we should transfer some money from Germany to the United well, States? Well, I, I can think of a few people who would welcome that, and uh, <laughs> maybe it would, you know, reduce some bilateral tensions. But that wasn't really what I had in mind. But you know, what's what's the downside um, of of this? Um, well, it's not quite austerity, but this balanced budget mania uh, that uh, that we see in Germany. Um, so we can appreciate that better here from a, a high high deficit country. I mean, the answer from from an economist is. Um, deficits are neither good nor bad and surpluses are neither good nor bad you really have to look at what governments do with the money right and um, on the one hand you could argue Germany is in a very strong economic position and when you have a booming economy in a way you should be having surpluses you should be saving right I mean you want to have the space in bad times to spend to stabilize the economy that's the job of the government to, to act counter cyclical uh, to help in bad times and good times to save. Um, now Germany is overdoing it uh, a bit, or quite substantially. Um, but more importantly, um, the problem I see in Germany is that we have huge challenges. Germany has a demographic problem, very different from the U.S., where you have strong immigration in Germany and a relatively high birth rate in the U.S. and in Germany that's different. We have immigration, but less uh, and um, very low birth rate. So in Germany, you see the problem on public infrastructure. On Germany has a very poor digital infrastructure. Um, Germany needs to spend a lot more on education. Uh, the U.S. would say Germany has to spend a lot more on defense. Um, so there yeah, are some many, people say that. Uh, so there are many areas where Germany needs to do more. And um, interest rates are zero. Uh, on 10-year German government bonds, uh, the interest rate is minus 0.3%. So the government is getting money for uh, taking out a, or issuing a bond. Um, so it has never been cheaper, uh, and you have never been never had such big challenges in terms of public infrastructure. So from that perspective, it would be very wise for the German government to say, look, we do that now in good times before the demographic change really hits and we have less ability to spend. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if I could steer back to uh, one uh, element that we started with, um, because you were talking about the inequality within Germany and then how that how that affects um, uh, politics. And I know that your institute has done some really groundbreaking work to look at the correlation between different economic factors and support for 
you know, uh, far right, mostly far right, not so much far left um, uh, political parties uh, in in Germany. Can can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what what uh, results, what conclusions you've come to? Um, because uh, I think what is f- one of the fascinating elements of that is that you know there is no simple explanation, um, and certainly not one that says people in a certain place are poor and therefore they vote for the AFD, for example. The upshot of our research is that you have people being dissatisfied, not necessarily because they're poor or unemployed, but it's really about um, the feeling of being left behind, of, of having no hope, of having less opportunity, less chances. So we find that the single most important explanation for um, the vote for the extreme right party, the AFD in Germany, is uh, its districts that have a very poor demographic structure, where young people are leaving because they have no future in that district, mm-hmm. no future to get a good training, good education, no future in getting a good job uh, and having a career. Um, when young people are leaving, in particular those who want a good education, who are motivated, who are mobile, um, this is the, the best predictor, best explanation uh, for a high share of people voting for the right-wing extremist AFD party. So it's mm-hmm. uh, again, it's not unemployed necessarily who vote for that party. Uh, they need a strong government. It's those people who who feel the government is actually uh, is failing them by depriving them of opportunities. Mm-hmm. But but what you find then, uh, just so I understand this, is that that actually of those people who have remained in those demographically, um, structurally um, uh, weak regions, that the actual level of income is is not the, uh, the predictor um, or the, the correlation. The level of income is not the predictor. The um, number of immigrants is not the predictor, right? It's often mm-hmm. Germany said, oh, look, uh, immigration, illegal immigration, again, something not dissimilar to the U.S. That's the explanation why people are so frustrated. No, it's not. Um, in those districts, you hardly have any foreigners. Right? Mm-hmm. These are the structurally weaker regions, both in West and East Germany. Uh, immigrants mostly go into the big cities, uh, and there you the, the right-wing extremist pity parties are much weaker. Yeah. Marcel, I wonder if I could turn your attention to Europe. Um, we've just had the uh, you know, five-year extravaganza where we had the European Parliament elections. Uh, we're gonna, we've had the German defense minister sort of on the line put forward as a new president of the European Commission. The current head of the IMF, uh, Christine Lagarde from France, as the next head of the European Central Bank, and other jobs uh, need to be filled. What kinds of economic policies uh, that can help get at this, uh, at, to help promote greater European growth and get at some of these uh, questions of, of um, inequality and polarization? What kind of policies do you think they're likely to come up with, and are, are those the ones that you would recommend? Well, let me start with what I believe should be done. And I would say these are three areas. One is completion of monetary union. Um, so we really need a integrated capital market in the entire EU, or at least the entire euro area. Uh, we need smarter rules, common rules to for coordination of, of economic policy and fiscal policy. Um, we need more um, safety nets, in particular for countries that have a crisis that have difficulty to cope with uh, with a particular type of shock. Um, so that's one area. The second one is uh, complete no- completion of the single market for services in Europe that I see is absolutely crucial, um, in particular for smaller companies, startup companies, 
they'd want to be successful, compete with American or Chinese companies in global markets. Uh, having a big home market is absolutely essential uh, to make it to make it uh, to be a global competitor. And the third area is what I would call public goods. Um, so you know to to really have uh, a convergence process uh, in Europe where weaker economic regions have opportunities to catch up, uh, get enough investment, uh, have uh, can keep people there. So Germany is a big beneficiary from immigration from other European countries. On the other hand, you have countries like Bulgaria, Romania, Greece, Portugal, uh, other countries that where the young people are leaving um, because they say, oh, look, in Germany, in the UK, it's better. We have better opportunities. So I would say these are the three priorities. What will happen? What will the new European Commission do? Um, I think there will be a willingness to work more on these public goods, uh, including on defense, to really say, look, we, we can't rely on the US as much anymore as we used to be able to in the past. So there's really a big dis disillusionment mm -hmm. with the US government. Uh, so the understanding is, look, we we have been admittedly free riding. We have benefited uh, from the US being really the global power that provided us with security and, and protection and, and guidance in some ways as well. Um, that no longer is the case. So that's sadly, <laughs> a reason why the Europe, uh, why I think the EU will hopefully become more responsible on that front. I believe uh, we won't see enough reforms on the economic side, on single market, on monetary union, because the feeling is, particularly in Germany, is we are going to have to pay for it. Our neighbors want money from us, and we don't want to give it. So it's very short-sighted, and it's wrong, um, but... Um, we have the same type of nationalism and protectionism and populism in many European countries as you have it here in the Is US. Is that a sentiment that you see uh, across a number of parties in Germany, so it really wouldn't make a difference what the constellation was in any future government? Yes, I don't think it would make a huge difference. You have maybe the Green Party that is a bit different and more open, more pro-European, um, also more anti-US, admittedly, so they have you know, it's it's multifaceted, mm. but only uh, in some ways. But yeah. only in some ways, but I mean, I I wouldn't say hostile, but it, it's yeah. you know, um, it has a different uh, different position on some yeah. of these. But I but I don't think it would make a substantial difference because you now have the two biggest parties uh, forming a coalition government now for the second term already in a row, and none of the big parties really has the political will. Um, and interest really to push the European reform agenda. One of the things we try to do here at the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies is bring uh, some of the smartest people in Germany into contact with an American audience. And I think we can safely say we've done that today with Marcel Fratcher. So I want to thank you for this uh, discussion, which has really been fascinating. And uh, thank you for coming to Washington. And we look forward to keeping in touch. And uh, for everyone out there who's listening, um, we look forward to uh, being with you again on the next episode of the Zeitgeist. Thanks very much. No, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.